0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 16. Almost there for those of you soldiering through the entire letter with us. Almost there. I don't know how many weeks I spent in 15. I'm sure that it was more than some of you wanted me to. But alas, we have moved on to the final chapter of 1 Corinthians Chapter 16. We will not go into 2 Corinthians next. I don't know where we're going next, but not 2 Corinthians. We'll... We'll save that one uh, maybe for a future date. Um, This morning we are only going to read... Well, that's not entirely true. Let me rephrase that. This morning, from 1 Corinthians 16, we're only going to read four verses. I will be reading more verses than just those four, but from 1 Corinthians 16, we will proceed through the first four verses. And for those of you who woke up today on Super Bowl Sunday and said, you know what? I'd like to talk about money. This is your day. I'm telling you, this is your day. We're going to talk about money and giving and all that fun stuff that you can't really avoid when you go through... The scriptures verse by verse, so the uh, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to read the first four verses to you, and then we're going to back up to the first one, verse one, and we're going to tackle them kind of phrase by phrase, because these verses say a lot more than they seem to on the surface. Um, and even if they don't directly say, they imply things that we need to consider. Uh, so, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let's read the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem." But if it is fitting that I go also... They will go with me. Now that is as far as we're going to say, well, how in the world can we get a 45-minute sermon out of those four verses? Uh, I promise you I have no issues with longevity, as you know. I can get 45 minutes out of a couple of those verses, but, um, but we might get done early. We're going to look at it phrase by phrase. So let's just look at the first verse here. Concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Now Paul is saying, there is a collection, which is a money collection, for the saints, those would be Christians, Christian people, and he has given orders to the churches of Galatia. Now that's not them, okay? But he's given orders to the churches of Galatia that they take this collection up for the saints. And it begs the question, what is he referring to? Well, you don't get it from just verse 1 of chapter 16, but we get it from the other letters of Paul where he makes these statements and from the book of Acts. Now, we follow what's happening in Judea or Jerusalem mostly through the four gospels, the life of Jesus. And that's, you know, what's happening in Judea and there's trips to Galilee and then trips to Jerusalem and back and forth. But once we get past the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... We tend to follow what's happening in Judea and Jerusalem only for a little ways in the book of Acts. And then as we get into the New Testament letters, we're following these events from afar. From afar. Um, and we know from Acts chapter 11 that shortly after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, there was a great hardship in in the region. And I'm going to read to you verses 27 through 30. Now, this is Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. You can just listen if you're really quick and uh, you were an expert Bible driller when you were younger. You can flip around all these passages. Otherwise, hear of the hardship. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, this is historically attested to in this time frame, the 40s AD, okay, during the reign of Claudius, and it affected a great region. Now, um, Jerusalem and Judea was an agricultural um, high place in an area that is very dry and arid and not, uh, you know prosperous agriculturally. The region of Judea, Jerusalem, the promised land as we refer to it in the Old Testament, uh, a land flowing of milk and honey, was just that such a, a wonderful promise because that is not what the Middle East is known for. Just huge agricultural bastions. But Judea was very prosperous agriculturally and there are geographical reasons why. You can look into it even today. Uh, There is a huge fruit export business from uh, Judea and Jerusalem in that area. Even today it remains true. And of course we do not have huge fruit exports from Iraq or Saudi Arabia or many of the surrounding uh, areas. So um, keep in mind that a famine hitting that land would have been particularly painful. And when famine comes to a place... Who generally suffers the most? Is it those who are the most well-to-do or those who are the least well-to-do? It's those who are the least well-to-do. Those who are the most well-to-do generally have ways of dealing with hardship. Those who are the least well-to-do oftentimes do not. And this is especially true in the ancient world. So there was a great famine. Then verse 29 of Acts chapter 11 says, The disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So this is, you know, the the guys that we're talking about here. Um, The very next verse in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now about that time, Herod, who is the king over that Judean region, Herod... The king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So we have two very difficult circumstances coming at the same time. One, there's going to be a great famine. And two, Christians find themselves suddenly on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of economic relief. They find themselves actually in an antagonistic position from the government. They find themselves being persecuted and we read of some of that persecution throughout the book of Acts and it's certainly implied and referred to throughout the rest of the New Testament. It is not good to be a Christian person in the Judean region. And so, that's what the collection that's being referred to here in 1 Corinthians 16.1 is trying to deal with. It is providing relief to Christians back in Judea, Jerusalem, which is of course the birthplace of Christianity, or the birthplace of our Messiah. It's providing relief back to there. Now, Paul has apparently commanded the churches in Galatia to provide this relief. And we see something of that commission when we read from the ver, from the book of Acts that he and Barnabas are given this commission to go out and gather some relief from the surrounding brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would say here that there is an issue of exhortation by example. In other words, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he is telling the Corinthians, I'm not just telling you to do this. I've given this command to the churches in Galatia 2. Now on one hand, we would look at that as Christians and say, he shouldn't need to say that. Right? I mean, he shouldn't need, you know, when you have two kids and one of them naturally does the thing that you want him to do and the other one doesn't You shouldn't have to tell the one who doesn't, hey, I gave this same thing to your brother and he's doing it. You shouldn't have to say that. They should just do the right thing. But nevertheless, we understand what it's like to point to an example of someone else who is doing well to exhort or admonish a group of people who are perhaps not doing well or someone who is perhaps not doing well. We get this several times throughout the two Corinthian letters. This idea that perhaps the Corinthians were not giving sacrificially to these various calls. These various mission calls. Now you contrast that with Paul's letter to Philippi and the Philippians. The Philippians are very poor people. Um, The Philippians are in a very persecuted region. And nevertheless, when Paul writes them, he's... Uh, thanking them and being very gracious and complimentary about how they gave sacrificially despite their affliction. Meanwhile, and we've gotten maybe a little bit away from the history of Corinth, but Corinth is a very prosperous place with very wealthy people. Huge trade that affected all throughout the Mediterranean region and all throughout the African regions. Huge trade in the Roman Empire very prosperous people by comparison to Philippi and nevertheless he finds himself exhorting them to give as he has commanded the other places who are perhaps less prosperous Um, in uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 we get something of this I'll I'll read you the first 7 verses we'll return to this chapter 2nd Corinthians 8 at the very end just to end on an applicable note here But Paul writes in a follow-up letter to the same church in Corinth, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep Poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. In other words, I make known to you that the work of God abounded through liberality, generous giving in Macedonia where they are in deep poverty. Um, This is what he's writing to the Corinthians in that book. He says, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. In other words, we were somewhat hesitant to take a gift from these people who were giving beyond what we might consider a reasonable capacity, and yet they were more urgently telling us, no, we have set this aside. When you say, shame on you, Paul, for taking money from people who are in poverty, who are giving, perhaps beyond what reasonable human logic would say should be their capacity. Shame on you, Paul, for taking that money. No, no, no. These are people who would not be denied The opportunity for heavenly reward simply because Paul was looking at their earthly circumstance. These are people who had determined and who had set something aside for some long time and despite whatever poverty they were in were determined that now what they had set aside should be delivered for that purpose and not be diminished by some earthly affliction. These were people with their mind toward heaven and we know that because what he says next in verse 5 of chapter 8 and not only as we had hoped they not only gave as we had hoped but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. By the will of God. In other words. The giving was not to impress us. They went beyond what we had hoped. And that first they had given themselves entirely to God. And the outcome of that was the gift to us. So we urged Titus that as he had begun. So he would also complete this grace in you as well. You see the tone of admonition there. Towards the prosperous Corinthians. Don't you? And again. Back to back letters. <laughs> the, the tone here. You get the sense. That for those who were. Well to do. Um, giving liberally. Sacrificially was challenging. Um, for them. And that Paul knew this. And that they had experienced. Not necessarily the same thing that they had In Macedonia, and Philippi, and Galatia, and these other places. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So again, verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, I've given orders to the churches, so you must do also. Is this optional? It doesn't sound optional. Is there an option when there are those especially brothers and sisters in Christ in need, is there an option for the church? No, not really. No, not really. And Paul does not make it optional. He doesn't show up and say, hey, you know, we're going to pass the plate or pass the KFC bucket, whatever you toss in. Thank you, you know, it's great. We really appreciate it. That's not the tone here for Paul, is it? It's not. Verse 2. On the first day of the week. Now this is interesting because we don't get this everywhere else. (laughs) In lots of the other letters Paul is is saying, you know, make sure, you know, we're going to give, we're going to take up a collection. Thank you for the collection. Here he's giving them specific instructions of how to do it. Which again, leads you to... To imagine that perhaps they weren't doing a very good job, right? (laughs) I mean, this is very specific. How are they going to do it? On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now let's break this down. First of all, the phrase, on the first day of the week. What happened on the first day of the week? Monday is not the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week? Well, it's Sunday. It's today. So, what has the Christian church done from the very beginning, from on the first day of the week? They gathered together to worship. They gathered together to, we call it today, have church. They gathered together to assemble and worship God. He's saying, when you do that. So, this is giving as a part of worship. Now, Think about that because that is not a new concept in the scriptures, is it? Isn't true worship always uh, alongside of giving and sacrifice? Think about how they worshipped in the Old Testament. They go to the temple, they go to the priest, and what were they required to bring? Sacrifices, of course. Think about when the... The wise men go to to worship the the newborn Jesus in Bethlehem. What do they bring? They bring gifts. This is not this is not a new concept. Now, um Paul is telling them, look, if you're going to give to the Lord for a heavenly reward, the reasonable time to do that is In the midst of worship. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's the only time you ever give anything to the Lord. But that is the reasonable time to do it. So on the first day of the week. And notice there is something else about that. Worship gets priority. On the first day of the week means. You don't go throughout the whole week with all of your expenses. And then whatever you've got left at the end of the day. You just throw it in the KFC bucket. Or stuff it in an envelope. That's not the way it's supposed to work. No, if we think of giving as worship, then we should actually put some thought into what we are giving, right? I mean, hopefully, if we truly see ourselves spiritually approaching the throne of God in worship, hopefully we are not thoughtlessly offering Him anything. Hopefully there has been some discussion if you're in a family unit. Some prayer. Some effort. <laughs> some thought. We know from the story Of Cain and Abel how God feels about careless thoughtless worship right he he does not like that you know uh, and they both made an offering and Abel's offering was acceptable and Cain's was not and we can talk about one being a blood offering and one be a vegetable offering but the bottom line is they were expected with great care to make these offerings to God so you should put care and thought into it. It is a first day of the week kind of thing. It is a worship kind of thing. It is not a, well, you know, whatever. No! No! Okay? And before I go any further, I want to be clear. I don't want the offering to go up a dime more next week than this week. Or this week than last week. That's not, That has nothing to do with this. We are talking about this because it's next up. That's Why? Matter of fact, if I preach a message like this and offering surge, that's not a good thing. What does that tell us about <laughs> where we were at before? I'm not So there's no ulterior motive here. But we need to understand this kind of thing is given the priority here. It should get the priority in your thought too. You are bringing something to worship. Besides just yourself. So let's think about that. Then the next phrase, let each one of you lay something aside. Not, hey, those of you who can afford it, you know, you bear the load. No. I don't want to read too much into it, but he does say, let each one of you. Now, I think we can put people into family units pretty safely and say he's considering each family unit, but I also don't think we should miss the opportunity to rightfully and prayerfully encourage even our children to start giving if they are doing it and if they can be taught to do it out of a heart of worship. After all, if we would hope that they grow up to worship the Lord, there should be some teaching and training to do that before they grow up, as they grow up. In other words, this is not something that just the great do or just the rich do because worship is something that everybody does. Now, Let each one of you lay aside something. In other words, it should be planned. You are laying it aside. (laughs) You. This is not again thoughtless well, let's see what I got. uh, No, 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 no. You know what I lay aside from my paycheck? I lay aside the money that I'm going to owe to the bank and the money that I'm going to need to spend at the grocery. I don't, you know, first of all, I should be honest, I don't go to the grocery at all. That's, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's true. I commission trips to the grocery, but I don't, I don't personally uh, frequent the place very often. And we usually spend more money when I do go. I don't know if any of you have that dynamic in your home. But, but when, when we look at how much money we make, we think about how much we are going to need to have for various important things. Like heat, electricity. Food, (laughs) things like that. And we, even if it is on a pen and paper, even if it is in our heads, lay aside what we think we are going to need because it's a priority. Now, when we're driving home and it's late at night and we're tired, we might buy McDonald's with whatever is in the wallet, whatever's left over. But that's not how we go to the store. We don't just say, oh, we're hungry. It's time to go get some food. Let me just grab up the loose change from whatever's left over from everything else and we'll go. That's not how we treat things that have priority. And if this has priority, then we need to be treating it with priority and lay something aside. You understand the idea here? Okay? And then something is what he says here. Something. The amount... Is not accountable to Paul (laughs) or me, in case you are afraid of what might be coming next. It's not accountable to him. He is giving the exhortation to them that they give, right? Who's supposed to figure out how much they're supposed to give? They are. (laughs) Who's going to hold him accountable? I mean, what is Paul going to do to them if they don't give? I mean, the worst thing he does do is like embarrass them, right? But he doesn't even want to be put in that situation. He doesn't want to do a collection when he shows up. It's not accountable to him. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I have no idea how much any person in the church gives unless they specifically come and tell me. I don't go into that back room. I don't see, for those of you who give in envelopes and their statements that get passed, I, I see one contribution statement and that's, Mine, and I put it into the little tax act machine, and it usually makes very little difference at all. And then I move on. That's it. I don't see it's not accountable to me. You're accountable to the Lord for that. Okay, and this is you know, on one hand, this might be a very convicting message to you or to the Corinthians, on the other hand, it might be a very freeing message to you. No one should feel enslaved. Through human guilt to give beyond what God's called them to give. There are people here who very well could be giving more than they're supposed to be giving because they're doing it out of some human shame or obligation or great fear that God's going to strike them with a lightning bolt if they don't hit or maintain a threshold. There's, there's no number that we're striving at right now. You are accountable to give offerings to the Lord. That is between you and the Lord. Um, Give something. Notice what he says next storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Storing up as he may prosper. Now, in the practical sense, the storing up might mean simply setting the physical money aside until Paul shows up to take whatever has been physically set aside. And yet, that language, storing up, evokes something to the Christian mind who has heard the words of Jesus. So I want to just give you four quick examples from the teaching of Jesus here. The first and most obvious is from the Sermon on the Mount where we are told in chapter 6 by the Lord Jesus, do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves can break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he goes on to say in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You reveal something to yourself. Not to me. <laughs> I'm, it's, you are not accountable to me or any other human being. Except maybe a husband or a wife at all in any of this. But understand. You reveal something about your heart. When you make your purchasing decisions. Your acquisition decisions. And... That's not a reggie application. That is what the Lord is saying. Now, I'm not here to condemn anybody's heart or excuse anyone's heart. But that's the sort of evaluation that we're supposed to be making here of ourselves. Because the heart is a big deal. After all, we're told we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart soul, mind, and strength. We're told man cannot serve God and money because they will pull the heart in two different directions and money is tied to treasure. And that's all Sermon on the Mount stuff there. Now, another example. In Mark chapter 10, and we get this in... Three of the four Gospels. The story of the rich young ruler is the man who would excuse himself on the grounds of his righteous behavior. In other words, a man who would stand up and say, I do not have unrepentant sin in my life. But the Lord condemns him at the level of his heart because of his attachment to his possessions. This is a man who Jesus says, keep all the commandments. He says, Yeah, I keep the commandments. I don't have unrepentant sin in my life. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, Mark ten, twenty one, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor. You will have treasure there's that word again from the Sermon on the Mount in heaven, not on the earth. Come, take up your cross and follow me. The Lord cutting past someone's excusing the condition of their heart by the lack of unrepentant sin, and the Lord cuts right to the heart of it. No, no, no. Look at your heart. And then it goes on to say, and the man walked away sad because he had great possessions. (laughs) It was too much. His heart was here. He asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He asked, how can I go to heaven? But his heart was here. In Luke 12, 21, and I brought this up last week, there is the parable of the fool who has that huge harvest. You remember? And, and you know, he says, I tell you what I'm going to do with my huge harvest. I'm going I'm to, you know, engage in agricultural design company and build big barns. You know, and I'm going to store it all up. And, and I'm going to take my retirement early and everything's going to be great. And God says, you fool, you don't know that tonight your life will be required of you. And then whose will all of your possessions be? And he has that, he's got like a 24-hour window to become fabulously wealthy in heaven. And all he can think about is how can I protect my wealth on the earth? He gets rich and he's going to die in 24 hours. And it profits him absolutely nothing. Certainly not eternally. And here's the application in verse 21 of Luke 12 after that parable. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now if you want to be rich toward God, you're not going to get there thoughtlessly. You're not going to get there by, well, whatever's left at the end of the day, let me, <laughs> nobody gets rich thoughtlessly. <laughs> and then the fourth example from Jesus, it's the stewardship of money and as it, how it relates to the kingdom of of God. In Luke 16, there's a parable and it's about this manager and he's not exactly a great trustworthy guy but he knows he's going to get fired and so he uses while he's managing well before he gets fired while he's still managing his boss's wealth he uses that wealth to build relationships that he can take advantage of after he's fired again not a great example of integrity but the parable of the story is look God has given you a stewardship of money that you don't own either the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You don't own anything. You are only managing things. You know? Some of us have really great, nice stuff. And let me be clear you don't own any of it. It belongs to the Lord whether you want to put his name on the deed or the, the paper at all. And I promise you this he can take it back the moment he decides to. And he will. <laughs> You are only stewarding it. So why not use the great possession that you steward now to build relationships when this stewardship is over? Which, in this context, is when you die. And, this is, and you say, well, that sounds a little crass. Well, listen to this. This is Luke 16, verses 9-13 from Jesus. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, by, you know, just Money. That when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So I am applying this the right way. We're talking about heaven. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Let me tell you what is unjust. It is unjust to be a steward of God's riches on the earth. And not use those riches for God's purpose on the earth. Now, again, I don't tell you what that is. You need to work that out through prayerful thought and consideration with God. You are managing His stuff, not mine. (laughs) It's no skin off my back whatsoever. Whatever you conclude. Now, next phrase here in 1 Corinthians. I told you we get a lot out of this. 1 Corinthians verse 2. It says, storing up as he may prosper. And this is where we really start to hit the nail on the head. Um, Who controls whether or not we prosper? (laughs) That should be an obvious answer, right? Who is ultimately in control of how things are going? It's not me. Okay, now I can try to be wise and try to be careful and a Job-like scenario can unfold right before me. I can try to be healthy and always do the right thing and my body can break down. I do not control my prosperity. And this brings us to the Malachi chapter 3. Great question of God, right? You know Malachi chapter 3, I hope. There's just this one verse that if you memorize, it will be great for you. I'll read three verses to you. This is God speaking to Israel and he's asking Israel a very simple question. Will a man rob God? That's ridiculous. You do not rob someone while they're watching you. (laughs) You do not rob someone who's pointing a gun at you. Will a man rob the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous God of the universe? No. (laughs) But then, the Lord continuing, yet, speaking to Israel, you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? God replies, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. (laughs) Ha! Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. It's ludicrous to think that we would rob God. It's ludicrous to think that we would get away with unjustly managing what He's given us. So... You Corinthians, Paul is saying, consider carefully on the first day of the week in the course of your worship what you are doing. And when you understand the context here, you see Paul is not begging for money. Paul is concerned about the relationship between a people and their God. And that is what this is truly about. Now you can't purchase for yourself a better relationship with God. You know, Jeff Bezos can't walk in the door today, write his check for $10 billion and say, now I get to go to heaven when I die. But if you are a child of God, you can betray where your heart truly is by denying Him the life and the service and the worship that you have committed And that's what Israel had done and God calls them on the carpet in Malachi chapter 3. The same God who gave them a land flowing with milk and honey and victory over all their enemies and all the prosperity that followed was now being denied the basic finances that he required to run the temple and the priesthood and everything else involved. Their, Their storehouses for the people who were called to be the priests of God were empty! After he had done this thing for them. Now Paul continues the next phrase. Do this that there be no collections when I come. (laughs) Which (laughs) Paul does not want to show up hat in hand. Trying to Johnny on the spot. Tell people to fix what they should have been doing all along. You almost get the impression that he had had that experience before. (laughs) And he doesn't want to do it again. I'm not... In other words, he's saying here, I don't want to show up and then make a big emotional appeal for you to give money and then out of emotion and guilt everybody give a bunch of money. That's not how giving should work. That's what he's saying. You shouldn't be giving because you've been emotionally appealed to. You know, this is not the Bob Hope share This, You shouldn't be giving because you feel guilty. You should be giving... Because it is a part of your worship to the Lord. That's what he's saying. And I don't want to show up and run a telethon. I want to show up and simply very methodically, very practically, receive whatever there is from your worship for the Lord and deliver it to the people who need it. That's what I want to do. You get a, a sense of let everything be done decently and in order here. This is how this is supposed to work. Um, verse 3, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And You know, he's like, whoever you decide should carry this money that you've stored up, you know, that's fine by me. But And if you decide I need to go with them, I'll go with them. Or if I'm headed that way, I'll travel with them. But Paul is not even concerned about the money in transit. Right? I mean, who would you pick, out of curiosity? Now, don't imagine we're doing the job that we do today. Imagine you're going to physically move this money from one place across an ancient countryside to another. I think I'd pick a big guy. I don't know about you. <laughs> I wouldn't pick a little guy. I think I, I might pick a whole handful of big guys. I, I don't know. Well, who would you pick? You'd pick some, a big guy who was trustworthy, Probably. I wouldn't send my son yet. I think he'd try to do a good job, but he's not ready. He's not ready. It's going to take a little bit more time. You'd pick somebody trustworthy. Somebody who was a Christian. Somebody who did not have any... But understand, if the guy takes all the money and runs, what's the great tragedy of that? If... If the guy gets waylaid by robbers and it all gets stolen, is one more person in Judea going to die for lack of that gift than the Lord determines? Nope. I mean, if you believe the Bible, God fed people in the wilderness with food from heaven for a long time. If the guy takes all the money and goes and enriches himself and it looks so unjust that he's stolen and embezzled and he's gone off is God not capable of settling his debts both in this world and the next? Yep. Yep. Did the people who gave all the money lose their eternal reward because they, somebody else did something unjust with it? Was all of their worship now empty and meaningless? No. <laughs> What's been lost here? You know, it's interesting. We read about Judas in the life and ministry of Jesus and we read that he kept the money purse. And we read that they found out after the fact that he was taking money from it however he chose. Why would the Lord let him do it? (laughs) Let me ask you this. How did it work out for Judas? Did one person starve because of what Judas was doing? That wouldn't... (laughs) Did, did did any of God's people not get taken care of? No, 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 no. Again, I'll ask you. Will a man rob God? Judas, Judas, not Judas, Judas, sorry Judas. Judas ends up hung, splattered, dead on the ground. And eternally far worse. So, Look, we need to pick honorable guys to go into the back room there and to count up the money together. And we do pairs. It's never one person on their own going back there, right? Let me tell you something. If some manipulative guy goes back there and decides to shove a 20 in his pocket, who's that really hurting? I'll tell you this. He ain't going to get away with it. He ain't going to get away with it. Um... Nothing terrifies me personally more than the idea that I would try willfully and intentionally to rob God. I have five children, a wife, a mother and father, a brother, a sister-in-law, a family, <laughs> and I'm going to try to stiff the Almighty? No, sir. <laughs> no, no, sir. <laughs> I want to sleep at night. Um, I want I want to pray to the Lord, as a child would a father, not as a criminal would a judge. Um, I will leave you along that line of thinking with Gehazi, who thought that he could take advantage where Elijah had decided not to take anything for his healing services to Naaman, and Gehazi said, "Hey, I'll go enrich myself," and of course, the judgment of that is leprosy on himself and his descendants. No, thank you. I have descendants. I hope they will eventually descend to some other people. Um, I I don't need to visit the sins of the father upon the children. Uh, Let's just try to behave honorably in all these things. Now, as we close, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which I read from earlier. And let's put a bow on this with verses 8 and 9. This is Paul again revisiting the same subject in the next letter to the church in Corinth. And he writes to them, after telling them the verses that I read earlier about how the others are giving sacrificially and they give themselves first to the Lord. This is, after the, this is the next two verses that, that proceed. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. What an idea. I am testing the sincerity of your love by the comparison of the diligence of these others in Macedonia. And then he says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That is the gospel of as if it were a financial sum. This is Philippians 2 in a much more succinct way that he did not consider it robbery (laughs) being found in the form of man to humble himself and become obedient even to death on a cross. I'll read it to you again. for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. (laughs) Heaven and earth and all therein belongs to Him. Every breath you take is oxygen by His grace. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. This Jesus' description of his life. And that you through his poverty might become rich. The same God who is calling you to worship him by thoughtful giving is the God who thoughtfully gave his only begotten son that you might know him. He is not requiring of you something that he himself has not endured. And we need to be challenged that way. Now, again, um, I, I'll say, I guess, in a closing, I, this should be an encouragement to you to worship the Lord in your giving. Okay? I'm not unhappy with the way our church gives. I'm not unhappy with you. I, I, don't, I don't have any criticism for you. I don't look at something you buy or something you own and say, oh, see, they're not doing well. Uh, And you just need to take my word for it. I don't. I wouldn't. It's not me to judge another man's servant. You belong to God. Your life belongs to God. But as a pastor, you need to hear these things because the word of God would challenge you To make sure you're doing this the right way. And I'll say this. If you have questions about these things. What is a tithe or an offering? Or what should I do? Or here's the situation. You know, lean on pastors and brothers and sisters to give counsel and to help and to talk through. I think you'll find in the pastors here um, very gracious counsel and wisdom. Not demanding legalism. (laughs) So if you need help thinking through these things, get help thinking through them. Don't just stand uncertain and ambiguous because you're in a weird situation. You don't know how to process it. Let's pray together and talk together because like Paul, I just want you to worship the Lord rightly and to know His blessing in your life. I don't want You to either rob God or you to out of guilt as opposed to joy waste your money as if it were storing up treasure in heaven when this is nothing but begrudging pittance for sin. Your money can't buy that for you. So let's talk about these things where we need to talk about them and let's look unto Jesus who's given his life for us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father I love you and I thank you that your word speaks to these things or else we would just be up to the manipulations of shifty and deceptive men and women out there who would tell us what to do with our money and who would take advantage and turn the gospel of Jesus into a chance for themselves to get rich and you even warn us of those people in your word many times. So I thank you that you've not been silent about these things, but at the same time I recognize that they can be convicting and challenging and, and also offensive if not received the right way. And so, Father, I ask for grace in the listeners this morning who've heard these things, that they not be offended by me, but that they merely do the evaluation of your word, which cuts both ways, painfully sometimes, so that we worship you rightly, so that we're good stewards of all that you've given us. Help us not to neglect these things. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.